here we go. I have some good news. I really do. Some excellent news. Christmas has come early. Or considering how last Christmas turned out for me, Christmas has finally arrived. George Santos, the patron saint of people with uh, out patron saints, uh, is staying put, I think. I, I spent the day doing the math on this, and I think I got it all wrong yesterday. I also think everybody else is getting it wrong. I said, everyone said, we all said there are now enough votes to expel George Santos from Congress and that we could see him gone by as early as tomorrow. That would make George Santos only the sixth member of the House of Representatives ever to be thrown out of office by a vote of Congress. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think George Santos, I think we're going to have him around for at least another year. I'll explain in just a few minutes. But first, this is the mop-up for November 28th, 2023. Thank you for finding me. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft somewhere in Manhattan where it's 38 degrees. The skies are clear and we can expect clouds by the afternoon. Temperatures will be closing in on 50 degrees. That's here in New York. I call it straight jacket weather. Make sure you go outside, just bring along a straight jacket just in case things get crazy. But 100 million people on the East Coast are expecting below freezing weather for the first time this autumn. Yes, it's still autumn. Tomorrow afternoon, New York, Washington, D.C., and even Atlanta, Georgia can expect temperatures to drop below freezing. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed and leave a comment. I read them all. You know that. All right. Inflation is down to 3.2% on an annual basis, which means the rate of inflation has slowed, but prices are not coming down off their highs. Prices are just increasing at a slower pace, and that that's a problem for Joe Biden because people don't say, hey, this hamburger costs $15 and that's only 3.2% more than it cost last year. Wow, the cost of hamburgers sure are rising at a much slower pace. It's still a $15 hamburger. Well, on Monday, President Biden said what I told you two years ago, much of the inflation we're witnessing stems from corporate greed. I said there was a very simple way to determine how much of inflation is due to supply chain issues and how much is due to corporations charging whatever they want because they control so much of the market share, it gives them pricing power. There's a very simple way to find out. Every quarter, corporations report their earnings. They report their profits. And what we were saying during the height of last year's inflation was record profits for corporations, especially in the food sector. That's the problem with duopolies and monopolies. Americans can't choose lower prices because they have no options. Well, on Monday, 
President Biden unveiled his new supply chain task force. He announced 30 steps his administration is taking to ease the supply chain burdens, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. Supply chain burdens that resulted not just in higher prices, but severe shortages. Biden then accused American corporations of price gouging. He said corporations are charging consumers non-existent higher fuel and raw material costs. Biden pointed out that all these costs have come down. It's cheaper to ship products to the market, and yet corporations are still charging consumers as if these costs never came down. Biden said, quote, any corporation that has not brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, even as the supply chains have been rebuilt, it's time to stop the price gouging, give the American consumer a break. Well, they're not going to. You know, there was a time when we had windfall profit taxes and Richard Nixon instituted a a wage and price freeze. There are a lot of things you can do to bring down inflation. The Iowa caucuses are January 15th. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie said he is planning to stay in the race all the way through the convention. Christie has been getting pressure to drop out now and throw his weight behind Nikki Haley so opposition to Trump can be solidified and not diluted by too many stray candidates who have no chance of winning. That's what happened in 2016. Christie, however, rejected the idea of leaving the race. He says primary voters deserve a choice. Sadly, this is the closest any Republican gets to being pro-choice. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reports that the Republican National Committee has nearly half the money in its savings account as the Democratic Party does. It's because big donors are reluctant to cut checks for fear the money will go to Donald Trump's campaign. The RNC reports it only has $9 million in its war chest. To give you an idea how bad that is, Eight years ago at this time, in the lead-up to the 2016 presidential campaign cycle, the RNC had $20 million. As I've reported earlier, Republican state parties in Arizona, Michigan, and Georgia are completely broke, asking to borrow money from the RNC. And why are these parties broke? Donald Trump. Legal fees, specifically to pay lawyers to defend party officials indicted and or implicated in Donald Trump's phony elector scheme, which is being prosecuted in, in Michigan and Georgia and possibly Arizona, as well as several other swing states. And for the life of me, I do not understand how Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, hasn't been implicated in the 2020 false elector scheme. Everything I've read suggests she put Trump's lawyers, Giuliani, 
John Eastman, John Ellis, Jenna Ellis, and Kenneth Cheesebro in touch with all the Republican leaders in those swing states who'd be willing to meet before January 6th to certify phony documents claiming they were duly elected Trump electors. I don't think we've heard the last of her involvement in all this. John Eastman is one of the 19 co-defendants in the Georgia RICO trial, charging Donald Trump with running a criminal racket to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Eastman is charged with writing several memos that outlined the phony elector scheme, as well as why Mike Pence had the constitutional authority not to certify the election for Joe Biden on January 6th. Eastman is reportedly furious now that the Fulton County District Attorney has asked the judge for an August start date for the trial. And on Monday, he filed a motion to start his trial much earlier in 2024. Meanwhile, it has not been a good year for John Eastman. Earlier this month, a five a month disbarment hearing it lasted five months as disbarment hearing in California. And they concluded that he was, in fact, culpable in breaking ethics rules by assisting Trump to uh, overturn the 2020 election. And now a judge in California has to decide whether to take away John Eastman's license to practice law. Eastman is a former law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas as well as a close friend of Ginny Thomas, and up until recently, one of the leading scholars at the Claremont Institute, which the New Republic describes as one of America's leading anti-democratic think tanks that promotes authoritarianism and white nationalists. Hard to feel sorry for this guy. And now John Eastman claims he's broke. In an interview, Eastman said the legal defense fund set up for him so far only covers one third of what his legal fees have been and that it only covers one eighth of what he expects his legal fees to amount to by the time this is all over. That's what he said. By the time this is all over. All over? This is never ending. This is a bust out, Davey, as Tony Soprano said to his friend who owned the Sporting's Goods store. This doesn't end. You're just going through Georgia. There's also the phony elector scheme in Michigan, that trial, Arizona, Nevada, perhaps, maybe Wisconsin, too. I got news for you, Mr. Eastman. I don't think this ends anytime soon. Plus, it's believed that John Eastman was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in special counsel Jack Smith's Washington, D.C. trial, charging Donald Trump with election interference. Who knows where that trial leads? This is going to be going on for years, John Eastman it's kind of like your Green Bay sweep, but this time the zone getting flooded is you. 
Eastman says he's running out of cash and is about to start tapping into his wife's retirement account, which he says he will probably end up completely depleting. He's going through his wife's retirement account. Eastman said he refuses to take a plea deal down in Georgia and plans to prove both his innocence and that voter fraud in Georgia is real. You do that. Don't don't plea out. You stick to your your guns and go through your wife's retirement account, John Eastman. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is apparently getting self-conscious about all those verbal misfires and gaffes he's been making out on the campaign trail. See, Trump's big thing is making fun of how old Biden is, but the routine doesn't work when you keep calling Joe Biden Barack Obama. If you remember, we've talked about how Trump's constantly confusing Joe Biden with former President Barack Obama. Trump is getting embarrassed, and rightfully so. And now he insists he's doing it on purpose. Yeah, right. And you warned us on purpose that Joe Biden is going to bring about World War II. You didn't mean to say World War III. You meant World War II. Well, maybe he did mean uh, World War II. I don't think World War II ended the way Donald Trump or his father would have preferred And I'm guessing he'd like to fight World War II all over again, this time with a happy ending. Yeah, you did it on purpose, Donald. You're you're firing on all cylinders, champ. Like when you called Sioux City, Sioux Falls, you did that on purpose, too. Well, speaking of Sioux, or at least getting sued, Donald Trump will be back on the stand in the New York State Civil Fraud Trial During the second week of December, Eric Trump takes the stand next week. Prosecutors have already rested their case. The defense is now presenting theirs. And so defense witnesses are taking the stand in a trial where, as you all know, the judge already ordered the Trump organization to be dissolved and all of Donald Trump's New York state properties to be sold off. He's already lost this case. The judge has already ordered the permanent suspension of all the Trump family's business certificates in New York, which means they have been barred from ever making money in New York ever again. Or should I say they've been barred from racking up debt in New York ever again. Now, all that remains is determining whether Trump should be banned from purchasing any real estate for the next five years and how much to fine him. How much is the fine going to be? Initially, the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, wanted to fine Donald Trump and his two sons $250 million dollars. But then during the discovery phase of the trial, she took a look at the Trump organization's books and she said the fraud was, quote, positively staggering. And there are some who believe she's going to ask for way more than a $250 million fine, possibly as much as a billion dollars or double this. Now, granted, All of this 
is subject to appeal. Okay, I'll get to that in a second. But we just talked about John Eastman's legal fees. Imagine what Donald Trump is looking at. Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney and attack dog who turned state's evidence, says that Trump doesn't have the cash and that in order to pay his legal fees, he's going to have to keep dipping into the Save America pack and sell off parts of his real estate portfolio. But does he own the real estate portfolio? Does he own enough of it to sell it? If Donald Trump is fined just $250 million, Michael Cohn said Trump would definitely have to sell off his properties. Again, nobody is quite sure how much of those properties Trump really owns. And nobody's quite sure how much she actually owes on the properties and to whom. For example, does he really own Mar-a-Lago? His name may be on the title, but how much has he borrowed against it? For all we know, the loan on Mar-a-Lago could be, most probably is, completely underwater. It means he borrowed more than it's worth. You know how you refinance your mortgage to improve, you know, build a, a kitchen that never gets remodeled? He's been doing that his whole career. Diana Florence, a former prosecutor with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, told Politico yesterday that if Judge Arthur Engeron, he's the judge in this case, if his ruling holds up in appeals, and there's no, there's no reason to believe it won't, then Trump's business would be declared by the state of New York to be dead. Trump's three big properties in New York, Trump Tower, 40 Wall Street, and the Trump International Hotel would all be turned over to a court-ordered executor who would then sell off these properties and at the same time use the proceeds from those sales to pay off any loans, any liens, any extra mortgages that we don't know about, and of course then pay off any businesses that Trump owes money to. And you know he owes people money for services rendered. Okay? Here's the best part. If any money is left over from these sales, and there's no reason to think there would be, Trump has to pay taxes on it, but he has no cash. If he doesn't end up back in the White House... This fraud trial will wind its way through the appeals process very quickly. It could all be done and settled in less than two years when Donald Trump will be pushing 80. And he then has to come up with a payment plan pushing 80. He'd be allowed to pay back the fine and 
we're being conservative here and saying it's going to be $250 million. They would allow him to pay that fine over a period of years. And he'd be allowed to pay back what he owes the government over a period of years. Not sure the Russian mobsters have a payment plan, maybe a couple of toes each day. I don't know. But where does he get the cash to live on? Where does he get it? Plus, if John Eastman is looking at $3 million in legal fees, what do you think Trump is looking at? What do you think Trump is looking at? Now, he's got four criminal trials. He's got the civil fraud trial that's going on right now. He has the E. Jean Carroll trial that starts in January. Plus, he has all the other civil trials that we're not paying attention to, plus all the other investigations so he doesn't go to trial. How many lawyers do you think he's got working for him? I'm going to be conservative here. Let's say he's got six trials going on. Eugene Carroll, the four criminal trials, and this fraud trial. Let's be conservative here and just say three lawyers for each trial. Let's give him 18 lawyers, okay? But that's unrealistic. At the very least, he's got 25 full-time lawyers working on all these cases, plus the ones we're not even paying attention to and the ones we don't know about. So I'm just going to say 25 full-time fee uh, lawyers. So figure they they bill 10 hours a day. So let's say that's and I'm being conservative here. Get out a calculator. I I have it at 250 billable hours a day. 25 full-time lawyers, 10 hours a day, 250 billable hours a day. They work six days a week. That's 1,500 billable hours a week. 52 weeks a year times 52. In one year, and this has been going on since he left office, 78,000 billable hours in a year, not including expenses. Now, what do these lawyers charge? I don't know. I'm guessing some as much as 2000 but since he's giving them a lot of business and there's the potential for a lot of future business, let's just say $750 an hour. So I'm getting in one year $58,500,000 a year in legal fees just for Donald Trump. Uh, so, and I'm being conservative. Now, the past four years, how much do you think he spent on lawyers? The RNC picked up some of his legal fees until he declared he was running for president again. What do you think his legal fees have been? A hundred million? Just on himself. Two hundred million? 
And this stuff is going to continue, especially if he's not in the White House. Where does he get that money? Uh, he's got the appeals process. Again, if he doesn't win in 2024, once it becomes apparent that Donald Trump's not going to be president again, his followers abandon him. Sure, there will always be the losers who stick with him and keep donating to the Save America PAC. But that won't be enough for him to live, live off of. We know that he's been living off the Save America PAC, which was founded right after he lost the 2020 election. It was set up so he could investigate voter fraud. The money was supposed to go to Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, Kenneth Cheesebro. It was supposed to go towards all the lawyers, Bernard Carrick, who was supposedly investigating voter fraud, and Bernard Carrick, the former police commissioner of New York, went to Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, and reportedly said, you got to look into the Save America PAC. None of this money is going where Donald Trump said it was, and nobody knows where it's gone. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. I suspect, and I've heard, that he's using it. We know he's using it to pay his legal fees. That's allowed, and that's what he's doing. The records show that. But where's the other money gone? Where's the other money gone? Or is it all going to legal fees? He's got a lot on his plate. Can you imagine pushing 80 and living like this? And then, of course, prison. Prison. <laughs> There's a distinct possibility he's going to prison. Imagine Trump no longer a candidate for office. Just a, a failed ex-president, a failed businessman who's lost his licenses in New York to do business. Nobody's going to borrow money lend him money. Truth Social is a bust. It's lost $70 million. He can't make money. So he's got no cash, trying to stay out of prison, appeals, and then seeing the law, the legal bills. You know, luckily for Trump, he, he doesn't imagine risk. He's, he's like a 16-year-old a, a adolescent boy. They have no capacity to imagine how dangerous something is. So I don't think his mind goes there. If it did, he'd be in a, in a state of panic. Uh, this is not going to end well for Donald Trump. His poll numbers are impressive, but the only way for them to go is down. And as I talked about last week, Americans don't pay attention the way you and I do. They're not watching him. Once they say, oh, it's time for me to figure out who to vote for, and they take a listen and a look at this madman, he's screwed. He's screwed. Anyway, Congress returns to work on Tuesday 
and will keep going until their Christmas holiday begins December 14th. It's going to be a very busy three weeks. So what will consume Congress during the next three weeks? Well, the good news is we're not looking at any government shutdowns until January. I'll have more on the budget process a little later on in this episode, and then I'll talk about George Santos and why I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's staying put. I think we all got it completely wrong. He's not leaving the House of Representatives. One of the underreported stories right now is Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. It expires at the end of the year. Now, to best understand what this is, the Biden administration, the Justice Department, the FBI, and the CIA all insist Congress must renew Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or America will be vulnerable to foreign terrorist attacks. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is Rand Paul and the ACLU. Uh, The ACLU is opposed to recertification, and they say they would only support the Foreign Surveillance Act if it has more safeguards for our civil rights. Now, they've been kicking this can down the road all year. It expires in, what, five weeks? Section 702 was passed right after 9-11. Those in favor of renewing Section 702 say it gives our government the authorization to spy on foreign nationals. Those are people who travel to and from the United States. It permits the government to intercept their phone calls, their emails, and other correspondence without requiring a warrant. Like Mohammed Atta was a foreign national. He came to the United States, uh, hung out, went back, but he was never uh, an American citizen. So after 9-11, they passed Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act so that next time Homeland Security, the FBI, the NSA, they could spy on somebody like Mohammed Atta before he flies a plane into the World Trade Center. Uh, This Section 702 does not give the government permission to spy on American citizens, but the ACLU says there's overwhelming evidence of rampant abuse, insisting the FBI uses Section 702 to find what are called legal backdoor entries into the private emails and phone conversations of U.S. citizens. For example, if Mohammed Atta is talking to an American citizen, the FBI, the CIA, is more likely than not to listen in. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin of Illinois said during a hearing last summer that he will not support renewing Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act unless there are significant safeguards to protect American citizens from getting spied on. 
And those concerns are echoed by Republicans, senators like Mike Lee and Rand Paul. Republicans have become especially critical of Section 702 ever since the Obama administration and crossfire hurricane used FISA, FISA warrants. Is it FISA? FISA. FISA warrants. Uh, Republicans have been, uh, have disliked Section 702 because the Obama administration used it during the 2016 presidential campaign in order to spy on communications between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives. If you looked at the Durham report, there was evidence that somebody forged a FISA application. The FBI does play fast and loose with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So that has to be addressed before the December 14th holiday break. That's on the agenda. Okay. And then there is the emergency funding for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the border. This is what they have to get done before December 14th. The president, Chuck Schumer, he's the Senate majority leader, he's the Democrat, and Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate minority leader, they want an omnibus emergency supplemental where funding is bundled together into a $106 billion bill. But Republicans in the House, especially in the House, want the bill broken up into what are called single-subject bills voted on separately. It has always been assumed that Ukraine would be the tough sell for Republicans in the House. And it's always been assumed that Republicans would have no problem funding Israel. But now there's no guarantee that the Democrats are going to be marching in lockstep when it comes to a funding bill for Israel. Things are changing. Leanne Caldwell and Theodoric Meyer. Uh, okay, Theodoric, good writer. I think he come up with a better first name, Theodoric. Theodoric Meyer, great writer, except for his first name, Theodoric. But you got beaten up in grad school with that name. Forget elementary school. Who calls themselves Theodoric? Anyway, Leanne Caldwell and Theodoric Meyer write in the Washington Post that Democrats are getting pressure especially from young voters, to urge a ceasefire instead of giving Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a blank check. And if you've been paying attention to what's going on over there, there's a four-day ceasefire that seems to be extended for two more days. So there's a growing sense that the Israel supplemental may not be necessary that's what some Democrats are starting to feel. Speaker Mike Johnson says that despite resistance from the hard right in his Republican caucus, 
he is going to fight to fund the war in Ukraine. This is somewhat surprising because he is the hard right. He is the Freedom Caucus. Johnson said America can't sit back and allow Putin to march through Europe. Again, Mike Johnson comes from the hard right pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party. So it's, you know, it's surprising to hear him talk this way. If you are very Christian, you and your right wing and you're a Republican, you support Putin. The right wing Christians and the Republican Party see Putin as the, the great white Christian hope for Asia and Eastern Europe. He, he's authoritarian. He's cracking down on the LGBTQ community. These people are rooting for Putin. So it's somewhat surprising to see somebody as devout as Mike Johnson supporting Ukraine. Johnson suggested that he will wrap a Ukraine supplemental in with funding for the border, which Republicans think is the only way to sell Ukraine funding to a good number of Republicans in both the Senate and the House. They've come up with a way to, to sell Ukraine by matching it with border funding, because Republicans like to portray the migrants as an invading army. They're anything but. That's how Republicans portray them. And so, politically speaking, uh, in their enfeebled minds, uh, Republicans feel they're being negligent, worrying about Putin violating Ukraine's borders without also worrying about migrants violating our borders. But that's how they're going to, that's how Johnson is going to package the Ukraine supplemental. He'll tie it up with a border security bill. As for funding Israel, Johnson already sent a separate supplemental, a single subject bill to the Senate was dead on arrival because Johnson's supplemental for Israel gives Israel $14 billion, but pays for it by removing $14 billion from the internal revenues budget for 2024. It's estimated that you spend, you know, a little money on the IRS. There's $60 billion dollars that's been earmarked for the IRS and the Inflation Reduction Act. And that $60 billion is supposed to reap like a trillion dollars over 10 years. And the Republicans claim, you know, how are you going to pay for this? How are you going to pay for all these? Well, you, you beef up the Internal Revenue Service, and then the Republicans show their hand and say, no, well, we really don't care about deficits or spending. We're just trying to protect corporations and billionaires make sure they get to keep as much of their ill-gotten gains as they possibly can. Meanwhile, House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner told Meet the Press on Sunday that he didn't see how any of these emergency foreign aid supplementals can be addressed until January, but 
Punchbowl is reporting that Speaker Johnson feels a sense of urgency and is going to get to work on these foreign aid supplementals when Congress returns to work today. They come back to work later today. So we have some good news. We won't be staring down the barrel of a government shutdown thanks to this laddered two-step continuing resolution. Uh, Partial funding for the government expires on January 19th. And then the rest of the government funding expires on February 2nd. That means there's still time to pass the 2024 budget, which was supposed to have been passed back in October. To refresh your memory, the annual budget to keep our government running is divided into 12 appropriations bills. Each bill covers various departments. Now, according to the Washington Post, the House has passed seven of the 12 appropriations bills. Be nice if we followed this the way we follow the NFL. Uh, So the House has passed seven of the 12 appropriations bills, which means those seven bills are up in the Senate for the Senate to vote on. Now, the bills, those bills, Bills, if they're passed in the Senate and the House, they go into a conference committee where the House and the Senate and the conference committee draft a final version of the appropriations bill. Uh, Then both the Senate and the House vote once again to to finalize it. You do that 12 times and you got yourself a budget. So this process gets very contentious with lawmakers adding amendments or trying to remove someone else's writer. The process has evolved so that power is now concentrated in the hands of both the Democratic and Republican leadership. And what has become customary is to create what are called these omnibus bills, where the party leaders in both the House and the Senate at the last minute fold all 12 appropriations bills into one gigantic omnibus bill that nobody can read, which means nobody can challenge it. And then you create a deadline, you know, a government shutdown crisis. uh, And the party leaders on both sides order their rank and file to get in line and vote for the omnibus bill. It's one of the reasons so many lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are heading for the door. We have almost, I don't think it's a record number of members of Congress quitting, but it's a lot. It's a lot because there's a growing sense among lawmakers that when it comes to the nuts and bolts of our democracy, which is the budget process. We've talked about this. A nation defines itself by what it spends money on. When it comes to the budget process, something called regular order, where committee chairs spend the year holding hearings and marking up bills, and then 
are consulted by the leadership. That's called regular order. There's a growing sense that the entire process has been abandoned in favor of a handful of people at the very top of both parties dictating how our tax dollars are spent. And all of this is done in the name of efficiency. But what it really is, is a concentration of power. Nobody wants a mess. If you've ever worked for a living, if you've ever worked in a corporate job, uh, if you've ever been working in a startup or a new business, first it's a mess. Nobody likes a mess. So what they do is they work on efficiencies, but what efficiencies really mean is concentrating power into the hands of just a few. That's not the way democracy is supposed to work, or a republic, or whatever you want to call this kleptocracy. Let's call it a kleptocracy. It's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to be a food fight. And this is the complaint you hear from Republicans, the backbenchers. You don't hear it from the Democrat backbenchers. You hear it uh, from like Chip Roy, uh, Matt Gates. They think it should be messy. And Democrats, even the squad, uh, march in lockstep. Not completely. They didn't march uh, in lockstep on the resolution in support of Israel. But I believe if it were messier, and by messier I mean the Democrats start behaving like the Freedom Caucus, or at least you have some Democrats behaving like the Freedom Caucus, if there were some kind of analog on the left to the Freedom Caucus, then Congress, I believe, would be less polarized, less divided. It would force leadership on both sides to work together. It would move Hakeem Jeffries and Mike Johnson to the middle because they both have angry members of their caucus on the flanks. Uh, You would have the far right Freedom Caucus and the far left and... uh, they would make what the leadership considered unreasonable demands and would force some sort of reconciliation by partisanship. And their demands, the demands on the far left, would get absorbed into policy the same way these crazy demands from the Freedom Caucus get absorbed into policy. You look at the Freedom Caucus, they're not afraid of their own power. That's because they're from safe, deep red districts. The more obstructionist they are, the more they dig in and refuse to abandon their so-called conservative principles, the more they get rewarded by their constituents. The Democrats also have members from deep blue districts. But deep blue doesn't necessarily mean progressive. San Francisco gives us Nancy Pelosi. It's deep blue, but San Francisco is anything but progressive. It's rare to find a Democrat like Barbara Lee from Oakland, from a deep 
blue district who refuses to budge. There, there are still people in the Democratic Party, like Barbara Lee, who won't budge. So like I said, uh, and I'm hoping we all start following this the way we follow sports, because it's really interesting and you can control the game. You're a passive observer watching football, but this game, uh, you actually have skin in uh, and you don't have to bet to make money. You can actually call your congressperson to make money. So it's, this is about money, about distribution of wealth. This is you don't need a revolution. You just need to take over the, the appropriations process and transfer the wealth down, not up. Like I said, there are five appropriations bills left in the House. Did I get that right? I'm sorry. Is it five or seven? Let me double check that. There are, I believe, uh, where are my notes? All right. Uh, I think it's five. I can't, I'm going through my notes. There are 12 bills. I think they passed seven in the House. Uh, rewind. I think there's five left. Uh, the most contentious appropriations bill that hasn't gotten through the House. And it's fun to, to watch this, to watch C-SPAN, to watch this being debated. There, I believe, there are five appropriations bills being debated in the House. H.R. 5894 makes appropriations for the Department of Labor, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Education, and the smaller agencies related to the aforementioned larger ones. So this is an interesting appropriations bill to watch. You get to hear some crazy speeches. Republicans despise everything in this appropriations bill. They hate the Department of Labor. They want to eliminate the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services well, that they, dis they despise to the core of their very being. And, and that's just one appropriations bill. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has sub-agencies that include the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institution of Health. Yeah, that National Institution of Health, which funded the COVID vaccine, Moderna, as well as research at the Wuhan lab in China. So imagine the insane writers and amendments the Republicans are attaching to that appropriations bill. This is why they concentrate the power into a select few, because uh, people, uh, these Republicans are uh, cuckoo. Then, that's one of the five, then there's the Financial Services Appropriations Bill. This appropriations bill funds the government of Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is not a state. It's a federal district. It doesn't have its own state government. 
So right there alone, Republicans are messing with this bill in order to restrict access to contraception and abortion for Washington, D.C. government employees. This bill also provides funding for the judiciary, pays the salaries of our justices. Now, one would think if the Democrats had the balls that the Republicans do, the Democrats would attach amendments saying Supreme Court justices will be paid a dollar a year unless they disclose where all their gifts come from. If the Supreme Court right now had a liberal majority, you could be certain the Republicans would be doing that right now. They're already attaching amendments on the Homeland Security appropriations that Mayorkas be paid a dollar a year. There's a lot of power in appropriations. Uh, if you have a, a landslide... I mean, you need to control. It can't be these tight margins. If the Democrats control the House and the Senate the way they used to, you could move things through appropriations. People don't even know it's happening. Anyway, that's going to be a tough appropriations bill to get passed in the House. Then there's the bill that funds both the Department of Transportation and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. There's another appropriations bill that funds the Department of Agriculture, and that's not the same as the Farm Bill. Farm Bill, I believe, is every five years. This is to fund the Department of Agriculture. And finally, the fifth bill, so it looks like it's five. Uh, The fifth bill still tied up in the House is the appropriations bill for the Department of Justice and the Department of Commerce. They combine those two agencies in this funding bill. This is the bill that funds both the Justice Department and the FBI, and we know how much Republicans love the FBI and the Justice Department. So will they be passed by February 2nd? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we had our vegetables. Sorry about that, but it's important. And the more we go over this, the more fun it is to watch C-SPAN. And so, George Santos. Let's talk about George Santos. (sighs) If you've been following the George Santos saga, you know we might see a vote tomorrow. To, to throw him out. The Republican chairman of the Ethics Committee last week introduced a bill to throw him out. But he introduced the bill in such a way that the bill doesn't have to be voted on if Republicans don't want it to be voted on. It, it's, it's not privileged, as I understand it. A bill that's privileged is where you go to the floor of the House and introduce it. Then it's privileged and you can force a vote on it. For example, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a bill to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, and it was a privileged bill. In other words, she went to the floor to read the bill, and that forced a vote on it, and 
that's why it failed. Uh, so it's not a privileged bill. This, the House Ethics Committee, they fire, filed this report. They found George Santos guilty of all these financial irregularities and guessed the, the head of the chairman of the Ethics Committee filed this motion to have him removed. You need two thirds of the House to expel him. But guests didn't file it as a privileged bill. He just filed it and kind of left it up to the speaker to decide when and if there should be a vote to expel George Santos. Now, this is why I don't think they're going to vote to remove him. According to House rules, any member can force the vote. If it's, if it's not privileged, any member of the House can force a vote. And Democrat Dan Goldman of New York is expected to force the vote on Santos. I think he's going to force the vote tomorrow because the Democrats want Santos gone because that's one less Republican in the House. And if a Democrat forces the vote on expelling George Santos, I don't see how Mike Johnson rallies behind Dan Goldman and, 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 and urges members of his caucus to bring the expulsion past the two-thirds threshold. I just don't see that happening. Democrats want George Santos gone because that's one less Republican in the House of Representatives. So uh, I think he survives the vote. I, I think Mike Johnson says to his Republicans, we can't get rid of him. Republicans, they, they've been talking a big game about getting rid of George Santos. I think they're about to come to their senses tomorrow and realize they need George Santos. We need George Santos. I need George Santos. But the Republicans really need George Santos. I don't think they, they're not thinking clearly. Uh, last week after the ethics report came out, Everyone started to believe that the Republicans were so disgusted by George Santos, there was finally enough votes to get past the two-thirds threshold. But I, I have to believe they've had their Thanksgiving holiday to think about all this. They can't get rid of him. They need him. Their majority in the House is already razor thin. If they throw Santos out, tomorrow. It gets thinner right when they're trying to pass the 2024 budget and the FISA, FISA issue and the emergency funding. And with a razor thin majority, that gives more power to Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Even worse, if they throw George Santos out, New York will hold a special election to replace him. And it is now believed, according to the polling, that Santos's seat would now go to a Democrat, that a Republican would not win back his seat. For some reason, 
voters from George Santos's district no longer trust Republicans. I don't know why. So why would the speaker, Mike Johnson, urge his colleagues to throw George Santos out. He, it makes absolutely no sense for him to do that. Mike Johnson and the entire Republican caucus is an owned and operated subsidiary of Donald Trump. They spent the past, what, six years serving a felon. Suddenly they have a problem serving with one. All of a sudden they're worried about the rule of law. They can't make a move without a blessing from Donald Trump, who in two separate trials just this year alone, two separate trials just this year alone, was found guilty of raping E. Jean Carroll. And in another trial in New York State that I talked about earlier, was found guilty of defrauding banks, insurers and the government out of possibly three billion dollars. Okay, even though Trump has four, count them, four criminal trials starting next year. The Speaker of the House endorsed him last week for president. But George Santos is a bridge too far. We we can't be associated with this man. George Santos has been reasonable. He says he's not going to run for re-election. Why get rid of him? If he stays put, that will give Long Island Republicans a few months to find a suitable replacement to run next year. Someone who might be able to keep the seat. But of course, they're going to need to find someone who has the Santos magic. And that won't be easy because George Santos is a once-in-a-generation gold mine of fraud, deceit, dishonesty. And most importantly, he's got that perfect combination of clumsiness with just the right amount of panache. I love this guy. So before Republicans do anything stupid, well, it's too late for that, uh, let's say before they do anything more stupid, they should take a deep breath. Not around Marjorie Taylor Greene, but take a deep breath and think. How about forgiveness? Perhaps a little grace? George Santos? George Santos's only crime is he's a criminal. That's all. He got caught. And people like me, I, I feel that makes him vulnerable. And, and, and I want to protect George Santos. I think a lot of us are rooting for George Santos because, well, he has yet to be convicted. And I think most Americans still believe in the United States that a man is innocent until proven guilty of not being able to intimidate a judge and jury. Before we destroy a man's life, let's give him his constitutional right to intimidate a judge, that judge's clerk, 
give him his right to take to social media and intimidate witnesses, dox them, and let every juror know that if they vote to convict everyone, everyone, especially George Santos's friends, will know where these jurors live. Isn't he at least entitled to that? Just because the man's a United States congressman, it doesn't mean he's abandoned the right to make a mockery of our criminal justice system. So, we don't really know how this all ends with George Santos. Granted, he has been indicted by the feds on five counts of stealing money from his own campaign, three counts of wire fraud, one count of defrauding the U.S. government, and two counts of making false statements. And then there are the superseding indictments charging him with identity theft, falsification of records, more wire fraud, a few more false statements, aggravated identity theft, aggravated wire fraud, first-degree identity aggravation, high-wire fraud, and parking a stolen hearse in front of a fire hydrant with a dead body in the back. So, yes, on the surface, it looks bad. And yes, below the surface, it looks even worse. But deep below the surface, like really deep below the surface and then out through the bottom and then moving far, far away from both the surface and the bottom, it doesn't look so bad. I mean, if you step away from the entire thing, completely ignore all of George Santos's crimes, then it doesn't look all that bad. You just need perspective and blinders. And might I add empathy? Whatever happened to empathy, there are extenuating circumstances. This is obviously a deeply troubled man who hasn't had it easy. Why are we piling on? George Santos says he is the grandson of Holocaust survivors. And then it turns out he isn't. Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what that does to a human being? First, the guilt of being lucky enough to say you have grandparents who lived through the Holocaust, coupled with the guilt of knowing you don't have grandparents who survived the Holocaust. Ask any psychiatrist who specializes in trauma. The only thing worse than survivor's guilt is survivor's innocence. And he's a sociopath. But despite all of that, George Santos has pushed through. He's persevered. He's persisted. Santos, Santos worked hard at convincing voters he graduated from Baruch College. Yes, it was a lie. But lies often reveal a deeper truth about the person telling that lie. 
And with George Santos, that lie reveals a noble truth. The lie about graduating from Baruch College reveals that at his core, George Santos is the embodiment of a type of humility sorely lacking in the halls of Congress. A lesser man, a more ambitious man, a man who thinks he's better than we, could have said he went to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. He could have lied about going to any one of those schools. That's how talented George Santos is. He had the pick of any Ivy League school he wanted to lie about. But no, he picked a more down-to-earth college like Baruch. He turned down the top schools. And instead, he chose to lie about going to Baruch College. This says, this says a lot about the man's character. He didn't feel the need to wave his phony, superior education in our faces and try to make us feel inferior, because that's not who he is. And despite lying about not going to the best schools, somehow he was able to lie about landing a job at one of the most prestigious financial firms on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs. What an inspiration to all of us. Do you have any idea how hard it is to land a fake job at Goldman Sachs with only a fake degree from Baruch College? George Santos is the American dream. He reminds us that if you keep your head down, work hard at lying about your grades at Baruch College, you can beat out all the other candidates who lied about going to Harvard and then earn the right to lie about working at Goldman Sachs. You know, I also think that says something about Goldman Sachs for not actually hiring him. Good on you, Goldman Sachs. Good on you. So put yourself in George Santos's shoes for, for a second, just for a second. Born to exorbitant yet non-existent wealth. Do you have any idea the pressures that puts on an individual having to live up to the demands of your non-existence parents with their non-existent wealth? No matter what you lie about achieving in life, deep in the back of your mind, you're going to be thinking, all these things I lied about accomplishing, I didn't do any of it on my own. I had an imaginary leg up, a head start, because I was lucky enough to be born with a fictitious trust fund not worth millions of dollars to catch me if I fall. How is this man ever expected to have a meaningful relationship? Who could he trust? Does this person like me for who I say I really am? Or do they like me for who I also say I really am? It takes a toll on a child. And then, and then to lose 
your dear mama in the Twin Towers on 9-11, but not really. I can't imagine what that would be like. I can barely imagine, I can barely imagine losing a loved one on 9-11. I mean, that's too horrible to think about. But the thought of not losing a loved one on 9-11, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Why even go on? What kind of cruel and unforgiving God would take George Santos's mama in the prime of her life and not have her anywhere near the Twin Towers on 9-11? That does things to a child. You develop trust issues that inform all future relationships. You meet someone, but your protective shell won't allow you to get too close because you have issues. You're afraid that just like your mama, this person is not going to leave you the same way your mama didn't leave you on 9-11. And then to watch helplessly as the relatives of actual 9-11 victims receive financial compensation, but nothing for you just because your mama did not die on 9-11. What a cruel and heartless nation we are. How cruel we are not to think about the people who weren't victims, but say they were of 9-11. I truly feel sorry for George Santos. And we all should. Leave the man alone. Hasn't he not gone through enough already? Well, Santos is not going to resign. That's the kind of man he is. He said, you're going to have to throw me out because he said to resign is to admit all these charges against me are legitimate, which he says they are not. Shouldn't we take him at his word? Here's why I believe George Santos is staying put. And I mean this. Santos is to Speaker Mike Johnson what Joe Manchin is to Chuck Schumer. No matter how much of an embarrassment and piece of shit he is, you need him. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you for listening. Please share this, if you can, with your friends. That's the best way to help this show is uh, by sharing this via social media or in an email or a text message. Please like this episode. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Please subscribe to this channel. Thank you to the mods, Bob, in the, in the chat room. I don't know if Bob is awake. We started a little late today. I think that covers everything, right? Okay. Thank you very much. I'll see everybody tomorrow. Thank you for listening to me. Thank <laughs> you.